0: The time has just gone 8 pm, and you're tuned to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. A very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fuchs, your host for tonight's special edition of Great Interpreters, the first of four programs this month on the iconic Maria Callas. It's
1: a big destiny, it's terrifying. Mine is a big destiny.
0: The unmistakable voice there of Maria Callas singing Sono grazie Grazio Dio from Act 2, Scene 2 of Verdi's La Forza del Destino. Maria Callas, a name known even to those with no real interest in opera, a soprano who has been called the greatest musician of all time, an opera singer whose artistry has been compared to that of Michelangelo, who has been hailed as a goddess, labelled a living legend and termed immortal. In 1995, John Ardoy noted that if anything, Callas's influence and the high standards she set for herself as a singer cast an even longer shadow over the music world today than when she was alive. Numerous documentary films have been made of her tempestuous life, countless magazine articles and hundreds of books have tried to explain her magic and magnetism, and her recordings, studio and live, are constantly reissued on compact disc. Why? Why, as John Ardoin noted, are we still so obsessed with an artist who was criticised throughout her life as a flawed singer with an odd sound? A soprano whose career ended in an ill-advised concert tour undertaken with a broken voice. A woman who turned her back on hard-won, extraordinary artistic achievements for a nine-year liaison with one of the world's wealthiest men. The answer, according to Ardoin, is to be found in Callas' ability to excite the imagination. Hers may not have been an easy voice to listen to, but it was an impossible one to forget. In its dark, hollow recesses, it held the essence of theatre, just as her haunting, slow-movement gestures on stage were a mirror that reflected drama and music. 2012 marks the 35th anniversary of Callas's death at the age of 53 on the 16th of September, 1977. Here on Fine Music Radio, we will be paying tribute to this remarkable artist during the month of September, with four programs that will be broadcast every evening in September at 8pm. As the playwright Terence McNally once noted, Calas' art, fortunately, is inexhaustible, even if her recordings are not. She has given us a lifetime's work to be grateful for, to learn from and wonder at. The proof is tangible. It is in her recordings. We are in her debt forever. Opera has new possibilities thanks to her, and it is up to us to embrace them. After Calas... There is no turning back. Here, then, is the story of the incomparable Maria Callas. Maria Anna Sophia Chetilia Kaligeropoulos was born on the 2nd of December 1923 in New York City, the third child of two Greek immigrants, George and Evangelia Kaligeropoulos. The couple had arrived in New York in August of that year together with their first child, a daughter Jackie. Their second child, a son Vasily, had died the previous year from meningitis at the age of three, and Evangelia, already pregnant upon their arrival in the U.S., was determined to have another boy. Her wish, however, was not to be, and it is reported that when little Maria finally made her appearance, Evangelia was devastated, unable to even look at a newborn child for days. Evangelia, it is said, had unfulfilled aspirations as an actress. The world of opera in particular represented to her a golden world that reminded her of her affluent upbringing in Greece. George and Evangelia's marriage was anything but blissful. She did not adapt well to the new life in America and regretted having left her home country. It was also no secret that George had civil affairs on the side. In this environment of domestic strife, the young Maria began to look to her older sister Jackie as her role model. Jackie, five and a half years a senior, was a beautiful, slender girl, while Maria, who had always been a big child, remained heavyset, clumsy, and wore thick glasses since she was badly nearsighted. Evangelia doted on Jackie, while Maria, unloved from the beginning, became the ugly duckling of the family, a psychological scar that had a profound impact on her development as a child and which would serve as the impetus that would drive her towards the artistic heights that she would later achieve. Here is George Callas, He would later change the family name from Caligueropoulos to Kalas shortly after Maria's birth in an interview with High Gardner. Uh,
2: Maria herself said that, uh, and I'm quoting, my sister was slim and beautiful and friendly. I was the ugly duckling, fat and clumsy and unpopular. Uh, It's a cruel thing to make a child feel ugly and unwanted. If the quote is accurate, who made her feel unwanted? A mother does always... I had several times to say this way to a daughter, and sometimes I told to her, it's not good to treat a daughter this way. It is better thing to treat both like lovely uh, daughters.
0: By the age of eight, Maria had begun piano lessons and showed herself to be an unusually gifted musician. She would pick melodies out on the piano and by the age of ten was already singing arias from Carmen. Given her mother's autistic ambitions, there is no doubt that Maria saw music as a way of winning her mother's approval and affection, and Evangelia resolved that Maria would fulfill the destiny that she herself was denied. She started to promote her younger daughter's talent with the classic zeal of a stage mother and pushed Maria into a grueling schedule of competitions and performances.
3: Tell us about your childhood. When did you first know that you
1: could sing? And then what does it do to her? A- little girl when she has this this gift ah uh, well I can try and be brief about that uh, generally I don't think much of my talent uh, I didn't even think I had a voice my mother always uh, thought and probably they had good reason my father and my mother I don't know they always said I used to sing I was just sing for pleasure I never even dreamed of having to have a career as a singer I don't think I would have chosen that even might have uh, chosen being a musician, another, well, either pianist, probably, or an actress. Actress probably would have been my best choice. But uh, since I was a child, it was the uh, uh, Shirley Temple, and Indiana Durban. I said that before, and uh, parents can be very ambitious, not my father, my mother. And she came from a very good family, so she probably would have wanted uh, me to be what she would have wanted to be. I think the program was set uh, not by myself in life, in the very beginning. Yes. It was set by my uh, family, my mother mainly, who was commanding the family then. So uh, I had to uh, act accordingly. The program was that, of course, uh, I should become a singer, I should become an artist in any case. Usually what parents say is, well, I sacrificed myself for you, but you will do what I was supposed to do in life. I suppose that's uh, general. Your mother drove you very hard as a singer, didn't she? Yes. If you have a daughter who has great talent as a singer, would you force her to
2: practice at a very early
1: age? No, decidedly no. Children should not be given this responsibility. Children should have a wonderful childhood. I have not had it. I wish I could have.
0: The earliest example of Callas's voice on record is generally accepted to be a broadcast from the Major Bows' Amateur Hour, recorded on the 7th of April 1935. The recording made on that occasion is somewhat controversial, however, for the singing voice of the 11-year-old contestant heard performing an abridged version of Un Baldibe Dremo from Puccini's Madama Butterfly under the name Nina Foresti was weak and unlike anything that we later knew as Callas'. The girl's speaking voice, however, bears an astonishing resemblance to the great diva's characteristic speech inflections. Although she at first denied ever having sung under any pseudonyms, Callas later admitted to a friend that Maria Callas and Nina Foresti are indeed one and the same person. The pseudonym may have been a way for Evangelia to prevent her husband's knowing, for he strongly disapproved of his wife's domineering ambitions for their daughter. Since Kalas had an impeccable musical ear, learning to sing Unbaldi by imitating the singing style and timbrel characteristics heard on a recording would have posed no difficulties, even at a young age, and might explain why this particular extract does not sound anything like the Callas voice we would later on come to know. The performance, incidentally, was given a D rating by the Bose staff with the note, faint possibility for the future.
4: Nina Foresti. Dina Foresti. You're a student of singing, Miss Foresti? Yes,
5: Major, I am. What's
4: your ambition? Operatic, concert, radio?
5: Well, my ambitions were very high. But since my father's laboratories are closed, I've uh, taken a position. You had to remodel your
4: ambitions. (laughs) Father was a chemist. Well, what what are you doing now?
5: Oh, I'm uh, employed in the uh, toy department of a large department
4: store. You're Italian-American?
5: Yes, Major. I was born here in New York.
4: And you want to sing something from Puccini, huh?
5: Yes, I would like to. Yes, <laughs> one that's something uh, I'll
4: do. All right, what <laughs> do you want to sing?
1: Something from Madame Butterfly. All right. A bit abbreviated. Right.
4: That's good. Go ahead. On <laughs> ah, Who sang an aria from Madame Butterfly?
0: An 11 year old Maria Callas singing there an abridged version of Un Baldi Vedremo from Madame Butterfly under the pseudonym Nina Foresti, and that was recorded on the 7th of April 1935. George and Evangelia's marriage continued to deteriorate. By 1936, the rift between them had become irreconcilable, and Evangelia decided to leave her husband and return to Greece with Maria and Jackie. Although Maria was only 13 when they arrived in Greece, Evangelia managed to secure an addition for her with Maria Trivella at the Greek National Conservatoire.
1: They bought me the conservatory and they had to fake my age because of course I was then 13 years old and no conservatory would accept you. And I was
0: very tall and well built so I easily passed for 17 years old. Trivella was quick to realize the exceptional abilities of her new student and later recalled Maria's voice as an amazing phenomenon, a great talent that needed control, technical training, and strict discipline in order to shine with all its brilliance. It was during her studies with Trivella that Calas made her first operatic appearance singing Santuzza in a student production of Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. She was 15 years old. Calas studied with Trivella for two years after which Evangelia secured an audition for Maria with Spanish coloratura soprano Elvira de Hidalgo at the prestigious Athens Conservatoire. Carlos's audition piece was Weber's Ocean, Thou Mighty Monster, and de Hidalgo later recalled hearing tempestuous, extravagant cascades of sound as yet uncontrolled but full of drama and emotion. De Hidalgo became Carlos's first great mentor and schooled her in the techniques of bel canto. Though bel canto is literally translated as beautiful singing, the term implies much more. And through rigorous technical training in scales, runs, embellishments and legato singing, De Hidalgo taught Callas how to keep her voice on the breath, light and flexible, extending her already impressive vocal range while brightening and colouring her timbre. Carlos study with De Hidalgo left her in the unique position of having a great dramatic voice, capable of singing the heavy dramatic repertory such as Turandot, Joconda and Isolde, but who was also trained to sing coloratura roles such as Rosina, Lucia and Gilda.
1: I started very early. My teacher, who was uh, Elvira De Hidalgo, started very early. I think indeed lots of uh, great singers started very early, especially women. Essentially, our career is based on youth, wisdom later, but unfortunately we can't go as long as uh, uh, conductors. So our wisdom is created later, but our uh, teaching is done Mm -hmm. early. The earlier the better, because she had the real great training, maybe even the last great training of the real bel canto meaning that I learned the secrets, that I learned the ways of this bel canto, which, of course, as you well know, is not beautiful singing. It is a way of yes. music. It is a way of, uh, shall we say, the violin playing. The way the violin plays, the voice must play. But it is a very hard training. It's a sort of a straitjacket that you're supposed to put on, whether you, don't like, whether you like it or not. You have to exactly uh, learn, as I said, to read, to write, to form your sentences, how far you can go, fall, hurt yourself, put yourself back on your feet, continuously, lowering the lines of music on this basis of bel canto, learn music, which is essential, good taste, which is essential, Good taste is always something that's handed down from one to the other. It's the so-called tradition. Mm-hmm. The bel canto is definitely the schooling. So if you don't have the bel canto, you cannot sing any, any opera, as a matter of fact. This not even good. the most modern.
4: When you were working with Elvira de Hidalgo, was this um, very hard work for a young girl of 13 and 14, immensely hard work, Unstrenuous. It was hard.
1: really not that much hard work. I, uh, I suppose I was a solitary girl also, shall we say, and uh, I loved music mainly. So whatever concerned music, and of course, as I was te- uh, in, in the vocal uh, yes. department, so-called, I was fascinated by listening to all her pupils singing the various repertoire, which was uh, the light uh, operas, the rather heavy operas, the mezzo-sopranos, even tenors. And it was most interesting, because you know, you learned a lot. So I used to go to the, conserva- uh, the uh, conservatoire, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I used to leave with the last pupil. Even Hidalgo was quite amazed, because she was asking me frequently, why do you stay here? And I felt, my answer was that even with the, l- the least uh, talented pupil, you can learn something, because even from the least talented pupil, he can teach you something that you, mostly talented, might not be able to do. In other words, you can always learn. D'Addario had one, uh, which is the bel canto way, that no matter how heavy a voice, it should always be kept light. She knew I was a very heavy voice, uh, but she knew also that such heavy voices should always be kept limber, as uh, all athletes also, because uh, the main thing, I was a Dramatico Coloratura, and you must always keep the voice lighter than what she is, and agile. So I was already trained to do that, and also because it amuses me. Uh, It amuses me enormously to dominate a difficulty.
2: I sense that. Mm -hmm. I like uh, challenge. Yes, yes. I'm I'm sure.
1: What more is there in life if we're not uh, challenged to really dominate something that's nice uh, and to offer to the public with the maximum of ease?
0: Heinrich Broch's virtuoso variations on De Torna Miubene, as sung by Maria Callas in a live concert from the 12th of March, 1951. Following performances in several student productions, Callas began appearing in secondary roles at the Greek National Opera. The Hidalgo was instrumental in securing roles for her, allowing Callas to earn a small salary which would help her and her family through the difficult war years. In 1941, Callas made her professional operatic debut as Beatrice in Suppé's Boccaccio. This was followed shortly thereafter by 20 performances of Tosca at the age of 19, Martha in Dalbert's Tiefland, and Leonora in Beethoven's Fidelio. These early performances marked the start of what Callas would later refer to as her first career.
2: You were speaking a moment ago about your
0: first career.
1: Yes, my first career, you see, I started very young, Mr. Downs. And uh, my first career, I consider, I <laughs> call, in uh, Athens. In other words, uh, during the war, or rather, I left two years before, from America, 1937, and the war broke out in 1939. I was in Greece, and I yeah. stayed there, caught up with, with you war. You were a teenager then. Yes, I started, though, officially on stage at 13. 14, I did my <laughs> first Cavalleria. And from then on, I did Tiefland, Fidelio... Uh, quite a few. Operas, While you were still in your teens. Yes, of course. But uh, this great singers once upon a time used to start very young indeed. Even yes my teacher no. Elvira de Hidalgo, thirteen years old, she was on stage already. And it was well, women this were much type more of... mature once upon a time.
2: Ah, well, that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm sure it's, it's true, but it it, it must and, have been a fabulous training. Uh, well, that training is what that... gave
1: me my experience, I'm sure because I had my training there, I had my stage experiences, so I had my ups and downs. By the time I came to uh, Italy for the the big career, shall I say, I had already learned so many roles. I was singing for eight years. I had stopped singing for a year and a half, uh, trying to uh, find my way back to to the big career. So you see, uh, there was no surprise for me. That is why I say that this first career was most uh, necessary to me.
2: Well, I'm sure it was a marvellous experience. You certainly came as, a, as an enormous surprise to me. In other words, me.
1: young girls start at 24. They say, oh, she's very young, shall we say 25, for a role. Yes. It's true. I also debuted in, in big roles. All these roles were mine then. And I was very young, yes. But I had already an eight-year experience, 10-year experience. So you see, this enabled I was, carry I was off? prepared, yes.
0: After the liberation of Greece, De Hidalgo advised Callas to establish herself in Italy. Callas, however, went against the teacher's advice and decided to instead return to America to see her father and to do the round of auditions. When she left Greece on the 14th of September 1945, two months short of her 22nd birthday, Callas had already given 56 performances in seven operas and had appeared in around 20 recitals.
1: I came to America and here I am, uh, a very young girl of 21 with no, no one to believe in you. In fact, I remember poor old Merola, who was a San Francisco opera house then, the director, heard me and he said, oh, lovely voice, lovely this, lovely that. He says, but you know, you're too young. Oh, no, no. He says, I couldn't trust a 21-year-old girl. He says, look, you go to Italy and make yourself a wonderful career and then I'll engage you. Uh, I was offered in America in 1946 when I came here. Mr. Johnson was then uh, uh, director
2: of the Metropolitan,
1: Metropolitan, and uh, I uh, auditioned for them. I sang, I remember, I think it was Trovatore, the Amor Sulali, the first aria, and then Casta Diva. Uh they asked me what I would sing, and I said uh, I would sing uh, Trovatore first and Casta Diva after. And I remember Johnson said, well, that's a very funny way of warming up. You should sing Casta Diva first and then oh. the Trovatore, Edward Whoa. Johnson. Uh, uh. And I said, well, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Johnson, but I'm afraid uh, that's the way I warm up, and which is so true, it's odd. Mine is a strange voice, so I usually warm up with heavy operas, and then my voice becomes... <laughs> I can't it's imagine astounding. warming up
2: on one of the most difficult areas that was ever written
1: Well, it is <laughs> odd, I, I confess Custodiva. No, I warmed up on uh, Trovatore, which is odd Exactly uh, uh, One of the funny things in my voice <laughs> In any case, then he offered me, I went the next day And he offered me Fidelio in English To be oh. sung, I think, in Philadelphia And I said, uh, no thank you And he says, why? I know you sing Fidelio. I said, yes, but I don't sing it in uh, in English. Well, he says, you sang it in Greek. Well, I said, I had to, because I was in Greece. But I will not sing uh, eh, Fidelio in English. It's against my principles. Well, he said, I offer you Butterfly. And I'm afraid I had to say no again to Butterfly, because it was not uh, an ideal debut. uh, Because I think that the debut is most important. You must debut in the best opera, or possibly your best opera.
2: No question. No
1: question. So I unfortunately had to say no. And then when I did say no, all my friends and, uh, you know, people around you said, well, she's crazy, Hi hat, who does she think she is? She'll never get another chance like that, turning down the Metropolitan and blah, blah. Well, I really knew I had to do this, and if I was asked again, I'd do it again. But I promise you, it was not easy with my own conscience after. (laughs) <laughs> and I was sitting around, uh, waiting for a chance. Then we were supposed to debut in Chicago, if you remember, they yeah. were supposed to open the season then and yeah, did, uh, so. bankrupt. And I didn't debut there. But then there was uh, Nicola Rossilemini, who, de- who was supposed to sing Gioconda at the Arena, and uh, he proposed me to uh, Zenatello, who was then the director of Arena. And I auditioned for him, and he immediately gave me the contract. And immediately. That was the, that and that was the, the beginning. That was the really. beginning.
0: which he from Ponchielli's La Gioconda, as sung by Maria Callas, with Antonino Votto conducting the RAI orchestra Turin. Callas's Italian debut at the Arena di Verona in 1947 in the title role of Ponchielli's La Gioconda marked the start of what she would call her second or big career. As fate would have it, in Verona she met two men that would play an integral part in her life. The first was the much-revered conductor Tullio Serafin, who would become the second great mentor in her development as an artist. Here is Callas talking about what she learned from Seraphine.
1: What he said impressed me was, when one wants to find a gesture, when you want to find how to act on stage, all you have to do is listen to the music. The composer has already seen to that. If you take the trouble to really listen with your soul and with your ears and I say soul and ears because the mind must work, but not too much also, uh, you will find every gesture there. And it's so true, you know.
0: It was also in Verona that Callas met the industrialist Giovanni Battista Meneghini, who, though 28 years his senior, began courting her. The couple married two years later, on the 21st of April, 1949.
2: Uh, you've said in, in some of these other stories printed that, that your husband, uh, Giovanni Battista that five minutes after you set eyes on him and started talking with him you that he was the man that you'd been waiting for uh, how did you know?
1: well, I don't know these things, you see uh, you just feel them you don't, uh, you don't usually have any explanation thank heavens I uh, just loved the way he smiled it was so open and, uh, well, you can't explain these love at first sight, I suppose and it was love at first sight you can't explain was it five things. minutes? It was five minutes.
2: Fantastic. And how how long have you been married
1: now? (laughs) Well, we've been married uh, since 1949, the 21st of April. But we've known each other. The next day, uh, the day uh, I arrived was the 30th of June, and we met, is it the 31st June, 31 days to June or 30, I don't remember. Anyway, the next day of my arrival, Uh it was as though God sent him to me because I was very alone, and he really was always with me since then.
0: In Meneghini, Callas found a friend, a supporter, and according to some, the father figure that she never had. As she had been to her mother before, however, Callas became a twisted source of self-importance and purpose for Meneghini. Following their marriage, he gave up his business and assumed control of Callas's career until their separation in 1959. His love, support and money during those early years gave Calas the time she needed to establish herself in Italy, and throughout the prime of her career she would be named Maria Meneghini Callas. Callas's performances in La Gioconda, though successful, did not create the splash that she was looking for. She was considered a beginner and lacked the required reputation that would attract contracts from the larger and more prestigious opera houses in Italy.
1: There were many a time at the beginning of my second career also, which I call the big career, after 1947, that nobody wanted to talk to me. I mean, no agent would touch me and uh, give me a job because I was immediately after my debut in Italy, was not loved that much. I was something new to listen to, and they disliked anything that took them away from tradition. They really came to me when they just couldn't find another one to cast in the role. So finally, when they did come, they knew that I would be expensive and... Uh, but I promise you that it wasn't uh, frequent. It was about every four or five months that I would have a role. And finally, when I did sing this role, whether it was Forza del Destino or Aida, there were many people that used to say, Well, her high notes are beautiful, but her middle notes are not. And the other one said, Oh, the middle notes are beautiful, but the top are no good. And, uh, well, the other one would come out saying, The low notes are beautiful, but. Eh? but in other words, they wouldn't agree. But what, imp- what impressed me was in Forza del Destino in Trieste, one of those famous four months before i worked from one contract to another they used to say that uh, well she does know how to move on stage <laughs> ah. <laughs> that really was something that i'll <laughs> never forget but in any case i believe me up to two years nearly it was not as frequent as uh, one would think to work but also i had to say no to certain contracts which would have been below uh, my level you said that you have
2: have had to struggle, and yet it seems very hard to believe that somebody with your gifts uh, didn't walk right into the
1: uh, roles (laughs)
2: and into the big opera houses.
1: Oh, no, no, it wasn't at all easy. Uh, I had struggles in uh, Italy. I think they found a new element in in me. What they considered bel canto was just a beautiful voice uh, singing, whereas with mine they just had to uh, work their minds a little more they had emotions that they didn't feel before i was going against the so-called tradition which was then not so good because yes. the tradition of high long-held notes and uh, overdone phrases you know all this business yes. which i had to fight for enormously you had to fight to, had to put
2: f- the interpretation to clean into the down mu- voice.
1: put music back to its uh, place and not have these enormous long notes with these cadenzas uh, that never finish, and, uh, you know, real yes. old bad tradition.
0: Fortunately, Seraphin was seeking an Isolda and a Turandot for productions that he was engaged to conduct at the Teatro La Venice in Venice during the 1947-48 season. Remembering her impressive Gioconda from the previous summer, he offered Callas the roles. Having spent the previous few months unsuccessfully making the rounds of agents in Milan, Callas readily agreed though she did not know Isolde, having only looked at the first act out of curiosity while still a student.
1: Uh, when I went to Italy, I sang Gioconda. I was under contract from America. Uh, after Gioconda, I had sprained my ankle and uh, I couldn't move well on stage. But uh, mainly, I, uh, they did not really like me. I mean, I, had, I was a success, but I had no more contracts. In the meantime, Serafin had uh, left the Scala and he needed an Isolde, he needed a Norma, an Aida, a dramatic soprano, in other words. Yes. So he remembered me from Arena di Verona, and he called me to perform uh, Isolde very quickly, I mean, in December, so, and I knew this about November. Had and you studied had the role uh, beforehand? No, yeah? no? no. In yeah. fact, I thanked my lucky stars that I had studied in the Conservatoire, because uh, I had just looked at the first act by curiosity, And he, at the last minute, asked for an audition with me. And I wouldn't dare say I didn't know the opera. I wouldn't. I would have lost the audition (laughs) because, you know, they say that to learn Wagner is so difficult. And I know I'm a very quick learner. Also, with the experience I had with music and and uh, all that. I just bluffed. I said yes, of course. I know he's older, and I sight read the second act. I don't know how. Oh. God must have helped me. If I think of it even now, after all these years, <laughs> and he turned around and says, "Excellent!" Thank heavens he didn't ask for the third act because I would have died. I just couldn't stand the tension anymore. <laughs> Tell me, did you sing it in Italian first? In Italian, yes, because they used to sing, uh, in those years, they used to sing Wagner in Italian. in
2: Europe. Yes, I, I remember very mm-hmm. well.
1: And he told me, he says, well, excellent work. I must say you know the role well. And then I confessed, look, maestro, I said, I must say I bluffed. I didn't. Uh, I sight read the uh, second act. <laughs> well, he was surprised and he appreciated me even more then. <laughs> Being but so frank. Then I had to study. <laughs> <laughs> I must say one thing, though. Now, if I have to judge between Isolde and Norma, well, I'm afraid that Isolda is nothing in comparison to Norma.
2: You know, that's <laughs> exactly what Lili Lehmann said. Lili Lehmann, said. exactly. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> she said, rather three Goethe oh, Demmerum oh yes. than oh, yes. one Norma, as far as oh, yes. uh, the strain, strain of it
1: goes. Definitely. Definitely.
0: Isolde's Liebestod from Tristan und Isolde by Wagner, sung in Italian there by Maria Callas in that 1949 recording. The great turning point in Callas's career occurred in Venice in 1949. She was engaged to sing the role of Brunhilde in Die Walküre at the Teatro La Venice, when the soprano engaged to sing the role of Elvira in Bellini's I Puritani in the same theatre fell ill. Unable to find a replacement, Serafin told Callas that she would be singing Elvira in six days. When she protested that she did not know the role, but also had three more Brunhildes to sing, Serafin told her, I guarantee you that you can. Here is Callas in an interview with Lord George Haywood and Franco Tiferelli on her achievement in singing both Brunhilde and Elvira.
4: You, in fact, have had uh, in your early career in Italy something approaching surprises, but not on the stage, more in choice of repertory. Weren't you engaged to sing Wagner and find yourself singing Bellini?
1: <laughs> I don't mean
4: by mistake, but in the course of a season.
1: Well, it was nearly by mistake. I mean, it's by a miracle, shall we say. Yes, it's true. I was doing uh, Valkyria, which was uh, my second year in uh, at the Fenice uh, Venice. And I remember there was a, uh, a great... Uh, shall we say, uh, an influenza fever or uh, epidemic. And they were without a soprano for Puritani of Bellini. And uh, poor old Serafine was exhausted, desperate. He couldn't find this singer and that singer. We didn't know what to do in the evening, so uh, we were just, uh, you know, sight-reading the role and playing around with with the music. So his wife uh, heard me singing the aria, sight-reading the aria. And she came in, uh, it was in his apartment, uh, Maestro Serafine's apartment. She says, uh I said, will you do me a favor? When my husband comes in, in fact, she didn't call him my husband, she says, Tullio comes in. Uh, she says, will you please sing that for him? I said, well, please. I said will please him and make him happier? Yes. In fact, I did when he came back. He never said a word. The next day, 10 o'clock in the morning, was after my, already my first performance of Alkiria. I think the next day, or the evening, I think the same evening we had uh, the second Valkyria. And uh, I was called on the telephone, uh, please put your robe and come down, or come up, whatever it was. Master Serafine I said, Master, I'm not washed up, it'll take me about half an hour. He said, No, 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 come down the way you are. Of course, we wouldn't even say no to it, it was sort of a veneration for the Mm. Master then. And uh, I went down, and he said, Sing. I said, what? Sing what you uh, sang to me yesterday. There was the director of the theatre, Catozzo, then. And uh, I said, "Uh, anyway, I was forced to sing the aria. And uh, sight-read, of course, which was the second time, the third time I sight-read it. I heard them talking, and he says uh, to me, well, look, Maria, you're going to do this role in a week. I said, I'm going to do what in a week? He says, you're going to sing Puritani in a week. I undertake that you study it. I said, I can't. I have three more. I can't do it. It's ridiculous that I sing Puritani. He says, I guarantee you that you can. So I thought to myself, well, if a man like Serafine, who is no child, knows his job, can guarantee me a thing like that, I will be no fool to say no. And I said, well, my best I can do. More than my best, I cannot promise. If I manage to learn the part with my performance was a Valkyria time, but Valkyria, not Siglinde, Brunhilde, Brunhilde, I point out. And he says, all right, I guarantee you that, and you guarantee me that you try. That's good enough for me. So I said, well, inside of myself, if they're crazy enough to think that, then I, I was still young, and you know, being young, you have to uh, gamble.
3: What she did in Venice was really incredible. You need to be familiar with opera to realize the enormity of her achievement at night. It was if someone asked uh, Birgit Nilsson, who is famous for her great Wagnerian voice, to substitute overnight for Beverly Sills, who is one of the top uh, coloratura sopranos of our time. Uh, Maria became overnight the talk of the Italian musical world.
0: Vera's aria quila Voce from Bellini's I Puritani, sung in 1949 by Maria Callas. Much to the surprise and wonderment of the opera world, Callas's gamble had paid off. One critic wrote Even the most skeptical had to acknowledge the miracle that Maria Callas accomplished, the flexibility of her limpid, beautifully poised voice and her splendid high notes. Her interpretation also has a humanity a warmth and expressiveness that one would search for in vain in the fragile coldness of other alviras Overnight, Canas had become the toast of Italy, and offers to appear in various opera houses started pouring in, La Scala being the one exception. In December of that year, she also recorded her first commercial recording, a selection of arias by Bellini and Wagner for the Italian recording firm Cetra. The day of their marriage, the 21st of April, 1949, Callas and Meneghini set sail for South America, where she was engaged to sing performances of Turandot, Norma, and Aida, conducted by Serafin, at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires. Here is the only known excerpt to have survived from these early Normas, the duet O from Act 1 Scene 2, with Fedora Barbieri as Adalgisa. Remembranza from Bellini's Norma, as sung by Maria Callas and Fedora Barbieri, in that recording from the 17th of June, 1949, recorded at the Teatro Colón, Buenos Aires. And that was, of course, the role which would become so indelibly linked to Callas, and here in this extract it was less than a year old in her repertory. Back in Italy, Callas saw out the year with her only stage appearances as Abigail in Verdi's Nabucco at the Teatro San Carlo in Naples. Fortunately, one of these performances was recorded and provides the earliest documentation of Kala singing a complete role in actual performance. She flings out Abigaille's high notes with fearless abandon and navigates the treacherous tessitura with its legendary two-octave jumps with the utmost virtuosity. Anchio Dischioso Un Giorno, from Verdi's Nabucco, as sung by Maria Callas, in that live performance from the 20th of December, 1949, recorded at the Teatro San Carlo in Naples. Callas began 1950, a busy year to say the least, with performances of Norma, her fifth role at the Venice in Venice. During February, she sang more than twice a week, juggling performances as Aida with performances as Isolde, the last time that she would sing the role. During the last week of that month, she also added to this grueling schedule of performances the role of Norma. In May 1950, Calas opened the season at the Palacio de las Bellas Artes in Mexico City as Norma. These early Mexico City performances are invaluable in tracing Calas' development as an artist, since they provide us with her earliest complete Norma, Aida, Tosca, Violeta and Elvira on disc, as well as her first Leonora in Il Trovatore, Lucia de Lammermoor, and Gilda in Rigoletto. The opening night of Aida on the 30th of May, 1950 stands out among these Mexico City performances for an extraordinary vocal feat that Calas managed to pull off, and which undoubtedly managed to win over the Mexican public. At the end of the triumphal scene in Act Two, the high voices take an upward arpeggio E flat, G, B flat, and then usually, as written in the score, drop down again to the keynote. Not on this occasion, though. Calas soars upward an octave and sustains a full-voice triumphant high E-flat virtually through to the end of the orchestral postlude. The following year, when Calas returned to Mexico City to reprise her role as Aida, she again included the E-flat in alt. As John Adloy notes, the added note is, of course, pure circus, and why not? It fits in well within the scope and pageantry of the scene and is thrilling in its sheer visceral excitement. Final section there of the Triumphal March from Aida with that magnificent high E flat by Maria Callas as recorded during a live performance on the 7th of July 1951 at the Palacio de las Bellas Artes in Mexico City. Musically, the most interesting and possibly rewarding of the 1950 Mexico City performances is that of Callas's first foray into the role of Leonora in Verdi's Il Trovatore, I'd like to play you Leonora's aria d'amor su la li rose, followed by the duet Vivra Contendo il Jubilo between Leonora and Count Di Luna, as sung here by Leonard Warren. Of her performance in the duet, John Ardeon writes, not even callas would prove a match for herself here in Leite Trovatores. After her return from Mexico and performances in Rome of Aida and Rossini's Il Turco in Italia, Callas closed 1950 with her final performances of Kundri in Parsifal, a role she performed only four times on stage. Although Kundri played a minor part in the Callas repertory, she brought remarkable vibrancy, sensuality and urgency to the part. Franco Zeffirelli recounts her in Callas for the first time as Kundri
3: it was short after that episode in venice that maria Carlos came into my life i was at the time designing a show in rome uh, as you like it and uh, every morning i went to a wardrobe where my costumes were made and one morning i went there and there was no way to get a seamstress to think about my work because they were fully occupied around masses of uh, chiffons of all colors and they were talking about this phenomenal new singer they had heard the night before the dress rehearsal at the Opera House, I took a sudden hatred for this woman because she was depriving me of one, work, of one day's work. But nevertheless, that night I went to, to hear Maria Callas singing Kundry in Parsifal, and I, like thousands of other people, were immediately taken by the extraordinary quality of this woman's personality and the sound of that voice. I remember my ears were absolutely buzzing. I had the power of this woman and the presence. There was something unique was happening. (laughs)
5: Come <laughs> on!
0: 26-year-old Maria Callas there singing A Crudel from Wagner's Parsifal with Africo Baldelli as Parsifal in that live performance from the 21st of November, 1950. By 1951, Callas had conquered all the major theatres in Italy. Italy's most prestigious opera house, the Teatro alla Scala in Milan, however, still eluded her. She was a last-minute substitute for Renata Tebaldi in the role of Aida there in 1950, but she had not yet made her official debut at this illustrious house. The obstacle in Callas's path was La Scala's general manager, Antonio Giringhelli, who had taken an immediate dislike to her when she stood in for Tibaldi the previous year. Giringhelli was known to prefer stars that he could control, and in Callas he saw a woman that he could not manipulate. As it so happened, however, Giringhelli had promised the composer Giancarlo Menotti that he could have any singer he desired for the Italian premiere of his opera, The Consul, at La Scala and it was Calas that Menotti wanted.
4: And I asked her whether she would be interested in doing that, uh, the concert at La Scala. She had heard of the opera because it had already been given on, on Broadway and she knew about the great success of Patricia Newway. Uh, so I called Giringa and I said, I found my singer. Her name is Maria Calas. Geringeri said, Maria Carlos, oh, my God, no, never, never, never. I said, well, listen, you promised me I could have Maria Carlos. and uh, the Sabbath was present at our meeting. You cannot uh, go back on your word. So Geringeri said, well, I promised you that she could, uh, any singer you chose, would uh, uh, you would choose that it would come to uh, would be acceptable to me. But I will not have Maria Carlos in this theater else unless she only comes as a guest artist. She actually had already sung once at La Scala, I believe. I think she sang a performance of Aida as a guest artist. And evidently, uh, Geringelli hated her at first sight. Uh, so I went uh, back to Carlos, we had another meeting, and I said, well, um, Geringelli would be very happy, of course, I had to lie to have you at La Scala, but uh, only as a guest artist. So. Maria looked very surprised and quite indignant and said I'm sorry Mr. Menotti but unless I go back to La Scala as a regular artist I will not put my foot in that theater again. So I begged her but I couldn't get anywhere so I finally had to take another singer to Petrella. But curious enough before, uh, before we left each other that day she stopped me as I was going out of the door and she said, uh, uh, Mr. Bernard, I want you to remember one thing, however, that I will sing a la scala, and that Geringelli will pay for this for the rest of his life. (laughs) And she certainly made him pay for it. July
0: 1951 saw Calas returning to South America for a second season of performances in Mexico City, a repeat of Aida and the addition of La Traviata. As Tito Gobi would later note, I cannot believe that anyone else in the whole history of La Traviata ever sang that first act as Color sang it. Later perhaps she looked the part more convincingly, later she may have added certain refinements to her characterization of the role, but I find it impossible to describe the electrifying brilliance of the coloratura, the beauty, the sheer magic of that sound which she poured out then, and with it perfect diction, color, inflection, and above all feeling. It was something that one hears only once in a lifetime. Indeed, one is fortunate to hear it once Back in Italy, Giringhelli could no longer turn a blind eye to Callas's growing reputation and success. He eventually relented, and Callas, only 28 years old at the time, made her official debut at La Scala in Verdi's Ivespre Siciliani on the 7th of December 1951. Callas' performances in Ivespre Siciliani were met with overwhelming praise. The miraculous throat of Maria Meneghini Callas, one critic wrote, The prodigious extension of her tones, their phosphorescent beauty and her technical agility is more than rare, it is unique. The La Scala audience went wild for Callas' electrifying singing. Here was a dramatic soprano who could span a two and a half octave range. My God, one commentator noted, she came on stage sounding like our deepest contralto, Chloe Elmo, and before the evening was over, she took a high E-flat, and it was twice as strong as Totti Del Monte's. Thank okay. you. Amiche from Verdi's e Vespri Siciliani, and sung by Maria Callas in that live performance from the 26th of May 1951. La Scala was to become Callas's artistic home throughout the 1950s and the scene of her greatest triumphs. There, she was to appear in many new productions designed especially for her by some of the leading stage directors of the time Margherita Wallman, Franco Zeffirelli, and most importantly, Luchino Visconti. La Scala also heard Callas's collaborations with some of the foremost conductors of the 20th century, including Herbert von Karajan, Carlo Maria Giolini and Leonard Bernstein. After years of grueling work, exhausting tours and the indignation that she had suffered, Callas had finally achieved the price that she had been seeking. Her greatest period, the years 1952 to 1955, were however still ahead of her, and I hope that you will join me next Friday, the 14th of September at 8pm for the second programme in our series on Maria Callas, in which we will take an in-depth look at these four miraculous years. Before I sign off, I wanted to let you know that I've launched my own website, On and Off the Record, which contains podcasts of the various programs that I've presented on Fine Music Radio. If you visit the website at www.onandofftherecord.com, you'll be able to listen to and download recordings of some of my previous programs, and I'll be sure to add these Colours programs, as well as other past programs, to the site in the near future. Till next week, from me, Adrian Fuchs, Have a good evening, good night.